Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Last of the Mohicans is a historical novel by James Fenimore Cooper, first published in 1826. It is the second book of the Leatherstocking Tales pentalogy and the best known. The story is set in 1757 during the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, when France and Great Britain battle for control of North America. The novel is known for its detailed description of wilderness and frontier life and for its exploration of the cultural conflict between the European settlers and the native tribes of North America. It also features themes of heroism, love, and tragedy, and a moving exploration of the eventual fate of the native tribes. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 15 Then go in to know his embassy, which I could, with ready guess, declare before the Frenchmen speak a word of it. King Henry V. A few succeeding days were passed amid the privations, the uproar, and the dangers of the siege, which was vigorously pressed by a power against whose approaches Monroe possessed no competent means of resistance. It appeared as if Webb, with his army, which lay slumbering on the banks of the Hudson, had utterly forgotten the strait to which his countrymen were reduced. Montcalm had filled the woods of the porridge with his savages, every yell and whoop from whom rang through the British encampment, chilling the hearts of men who were already but too much disposed to magnify the danger. Not so, however, with the besieged. Animated by the words, and stimulated by the examples of their leaders, they had found their courage and maintained their ancient reputation with zeal that did justice to the stern character of their commander. As if satisfied with the toil of marching through the wilderness to encounter his enemy, the French general, though of a proof skill, had neglected to seize the adjacent mountains, whence the besieged might have been exterminated with impunity, and which, in the more modern warfare of the country, would not have been neglected for a single hour. This sort of contempt for eminences, or rather dread of the labor of ascending them, might have been termed the besetting weakness of the warfare of the period. It originated in the simplicity of the Indian contests, in which, from the nature of the combats and the density of the forests, fortresses were rare and artillery next to useless. The carelessness engendered by these usages descended even to the War of the Revolution and lost the states the important fortress of Ticonderoga, opening a way for the army of Burgoyne into what was then the bosom of the country. We look back at this ignorance, or infatuation, whichever it may be called, with wonder, knowing that the neglect of an eminence 
whose difficulties, like those of Mount Defiance, have been so greatly exaggerated, would, at the present time, prove fatal to the reputation of the engineer who had planned the works at their base, or to that of the general whose lie was to defend them. The tourist, the valetudinarian, or the amateur of the beauties of nature, who, in the train of his foreign hand, now rolls through the scenes we have attempted to describe, in quest of information, health, or pleasure, or floats steadily towards his object on those artificial waters which have sprung up under the administration of a statesman who has dared to stake his political character on the hazardous issue, is not to suppose that his ancestors traversed those hills, or struggled with the same currents with equal facility. The transportation of a single heavy gun was often considered equal to a victory gained if, happily, the difficulties of the passage had not so far separated it from its necessary concomitant, the ammunition, as to render it no more than a useless tube of unwieldy iron. The evils of this state of things pressed heavily on the fortunes of the resolute Scotsman who now defended William Henry. Though his adversary neglected the hills, he had planted his batteries with judgment on the plain and caused them to be served with vigor and skill. Against this assault, the besieged could only oppose the imperfect and hasty preparations of a fortress in the wilderness. It was in the afternoon of the fifth day of the siege and the fourth of his own service in it that Major Hayward profited by a parley that had just been beaten by repairing to the ramparts of one of the water bastions to breathe the cool air from the lake and to take a survey of the progress of the siege. He was alone, yet the solitary sentinel who paced the mound be accepted, for the artillerists had hastened also to profit by the temporary suspension of their arduous duties. The evening was delightfully calm and the light air from the limpid water fresh and soothing. It seemed as if, with the termination to the roar of artillery and the plunging of shot, nature had also seized the moment to assume her mildest and most captivating form. The sun poured down his parting glory on the scene without the oppression of those fierce rays that belonged to the climate and the season. The mountains looked green and fresh and lovely, tempered with the milder light, or softened in shadow as thin vapors floated between them and the sun. The numerous islands rested on the bosom of the hurricane, some low and sunken, as if embedded in the waters, and others appearing to hover above the element in little hillocks of green velvet, among which the fishermen of the beleaguering army peacefully rode their skiffs or floated at rest on the glassy mirror in quiet pursuit of their employment. The scene was at once animated and still. All that pertained to nature was sweet were simply grand, while those parts which depended on the temper and movements of man were lively and playful. Two little spotless flags were abroad, the one on a salient angle of the fort and the other on the advanced battery of the besiegers, emblems of the truce which existed, not only to the axe, but it would seem, also, to the enmity of the combatants. Behind these, again, swung, heavily opening and closing in silken folds, the rival standards of England and France. A hundred gay and thoughtless young Frenchmen were drawing a net to the pebbly beach, 
within dangerous proximity to the sullen but silent cannon of the fort, while the eastern mountain was sending back the loud shouts and gay merriment that attended their sport. Some were rushing eagerly to enjoy the aquatic games of the lake, and others were already toiling their way up the neighboring hills with the restless curiosity of their nation. To all these sports and pursuits, those of the enemy who watched the besieged and the besieged themselves were, however, merely the idle, though sympathizing spectators. Here and there a picket had, indeed, raised a song or mingled in a dance which had drawn the dusky savages around them from their lairs in the forest. In short, everything were rather the appearance of a day of pleasure than of an hour stolen from the dangers and toil of a bloody and vindictive warfare. Duncan had stood in a musing attitude, contemplating this scene a few minutes when his eyes were directed to the glassy in front of the sally port already mentioned by the sounds of approaching footsteps. He walked to an angle of the bastion and beheld the scout advancing under the custody of a French officer to the body of the fort. The countenance of Hawkeye was haggard and careworn and his air dejected as though he felt the deepest degradation at having fallen into the power of his enemies. He was without his favorite weapon and his arms were even bound behind him with thongs made of the skin of a deer. The arrival of flags to cover the messengers of summons had occurred so often of late that when Hayward first threw his careless glance on this group, he expected to see another of the officers of the enemy charged with a similar office, but the instant he recognized the tall person and still sturdy though downcast features of his friend the woodsman, he started with surprise and turned to descend from the bastion into the bosom of the work. The sounds of other voices, however, caught his attention and for a moment caused him to forget his purpose. At the inner angle of the mound he met the sisters, walking along the parapet in search, like himself, of air and relief from confinement. They had not met from that painful moment when he deserted them on the plain only to assure their safety. He had parted from them worn with care and jaded with fatigue he now saw them refreshed and blooming, though timid and anxious. Under such an inducement, it will cause no surprise that the young man lost sight, for a time, of other objects in order to address them. He was, however, anticipated by the voice of the ingenuous and youthful Alice. Ah, oh, thou truant, thou recreant knight, he who abandons his damsels in the very lists, she cried, here have we been days, nay, ages, expecting you at our feet, imploring mercy and forgetfulness of your craven backsliding, or, I should rather say, backrunning for verily you fled in a manner that no stricken deer, as our worthy friend the scout would say, could equal. You know that Alice means our thanks and our blessings, added the graver and more thoughtful Cora. In truth, we have a little wondered why you should so rigidly absent yourself from a place where the gratitude of the daughters might receive the support of a parent's thanks. Your father himself could tell you that though absent from your presence, I have not been altogether forgetful of your safety, returned the young man, 
the mastery of yonder village of huts, pointing to the neighboring entrenched camp, has been keenly disputed, and he who holds it is sure to be possessed of this fort and that which it contains. My days and my nights have all been passed there since we separated, because I thought that duty called me thither. But, he added with an air of chagrin, which he endeavored, though unsuccessfully, to conceal, had I been aware that what I then believed a soldier's conduct could so be construed, shame would have been added to the list of reasons. Hayward, Duncan, exclaimed Alice, bending forward to read his half-averted countenance until a lock of her golden hair rested on her flushed cheek and nearly concealed the tear that had started to write. Did I think this idle tongue of mine had pained you? I would silence it forever, Cora can say, if Cora would, how justly we have prized your services, and how deep I had almost said, how fervent is our gratitude. And will Cora attest the truth of this? cried Duncan, suffering the cloud to be chased from his countenance by a smile of open pleasure. What says our graver sister? Will she find an excuse for the neglect of the night and the duty of a soldier? Cora made no immediate answer, but turned her face towards the water, as if looking on the sheet of the hurricane. When she did bend her dark eyes on the young man, they were yet filled with an expression of anguish that at once drove every thought but that kind solicitude from his mind. You are not well, dearest Miss Monroe, he exclaimed, we have trifled while you are in suffering. Tis nothing, she answered, refusing his offered support with feminine reserve. That I cannot see the sunny side of the picture of life, like this heartless but ardent enthusiast, she added, laying her hand lightly but affectionately on the arm of her sister is the penalty of experience and, perhaps, the misfortune of my nature. See, she continued, as it determined to shake off infirmity in a sense of duty, look around you, Major Hayward, and tell me what a prospect is this for the daughter of a soldier whose greatest happiness is his honor and his military renown. Neither ought nor shall be tarnished by circumstances over which he has had no control, Duncan warmly replied. But your words recall me to my own duty. I go now to your gallant father to hear his determination in matters of the last moment to the defense. God bless you in every fortune, noble Cora I may and must call you. She frankly gave him her hand, though her lip quivered and her cheeks gradually became of an ashy paleness. In every fortune, I know you will be an ornament and honor to your sex. Alice, adieu his tone changed from admiration to tenderness dash adieu. Alice, we shall soon meet again as conquerors, I trust, and amid rejoicings. Without waiting for an answer from either, the young man threw himself down the grassy steps of the bastion and moving rapidly across the parade, he was quickly in the presence of their father. Monroe was pacing his narrow apartment with a disturbed air and gigantic strides as Duncan entered. You have anticipated my wishes, Major Hayward, he said, I was about to request this favor. I am sorry to see, sir, that the messenger I so warmly recommended has returned in custody of the French. 
I hope there is no reason to distrust his fidelity. The fidelity of the long rifle is well known to me, returned Monroe, and is above suspicion, though his usual good fortune seems, at last, to have failed. Montcalm has got him, and with the accursed politeness of his nation, he has sent him in with a doleful tale of knowing how I value the fellow he could not think of retaining him. A Jesuitical way, that, Major Duncan Hayward, of telling a man of his misfortunes. But the general and his succor? Did ye look to the south as ye entered, and could ye not see them? said the old soldier, laughing bitterly. Poot! Poot! You're an impatient boy, sir, and cannot give the gentlemen leisure for their march. They are coming, then? The scout has said as much. When? And by what path? For the dunce has omitted to tell me this. There is a letter, it would seem, too, and that is the only agreeable part of the matter. For the customary attentions of your Marquis of Montcalm, I warned me, Duncan, that he of Lothian would buy a dozen such marquisites, but if the news of the letter were bad, the gentility of this French monsieur would certainly compel him to let us know it. He keeps the letter, then, while he releases the messenger. Aye, that does he, and all for the sake of what you call your bonhomie, I would venture. If the truth was known, the fellow's grandfather taught the noble science of dancing. But what says the scout? He has eyes and ears, and a tongue. What verbal report does he make? Oh! Sir, he is not wanting in natural organs, and he is free to tell all that he has seen and heard. The whole amount is this. There is a fort of his majesty's on the banks of the Hudson, called Edward, in honor of his gracious highness of York, you'll know, and it is well filled with armed men, as such a work should be. But was there no movement, no signs of any intention to advance to our relief? There were the morning and evening parades, and when one of the provincial loons you'll know, Duncan, you're half a Scotsman yourself when one of them dropped his powder over his perech, if it touched the coals, it just burnt then suddenly changing his bitter, ironical manner to one more grave and thoughtful, he continued, and yet there might, and must be, something in that letter which it would be well to know. Our decision should be speedy, said Duncan, gladly availing himself of this change of humor to press the more important objects of their interview. I cannot conceal from you, sir, that the camp will not be much longer tenable, and I am sorry to add, that things appear no better in the fort, more than half the guns are bursted. And how should it be otherwise? Some were fished from the bottom of the lake, some have been rusting in the woods since the discovery of the country, and some were never guns at all mere privateersmen's playthings. Do you think, sir, you can have Woolwich Warren in the midst of a wilderness, three thousand miles from Great Britain, the walls are crumbling about our ears, and provisions begin to fail us, continued Hayward, without regarding this new burst of indignation, even the men show signs of discontent and alarm. 
Major Hayward, said Monroe, turning to his youthful associate with the dignity of his years and superior rank, I should have served his majesty for half a century and earned these gray hairs. In vain were I ignorant of all you say and of the pressing nature of our circumstances. Still, there is everything due to the honor of the king's arms and something to ourselves. While there is hope of succor, this fortress will I defend, though it be to be done with pebbles gathered on the lake shore. It is a sight of the letter, therefore, that we want, that we may know the intentions of the man the Earl of Loudon has left among us as his substitute. And can I be of service in the matter? Sir, you can. The Marquis of Montcalm has, in addition to his other civilities, invited me to a personal interview between the works and his own camp in order, as he says, to impart some additional information. Now, I think it would not be wise to show any undue solicitude to meet him, and I would employ you, an officer of rank, as my substitute, for it would but ill comport with the honor of Scotland to let it be said one of her gentlemen was outdone in civility by a native of any other country on earth. Without assuming the supererogatory task of entering into a discussion of the comparative merits of national courtesy, Duncan cheerfully ascended to supply the place of the veteran in the approaching interview. A long and confidential communication now succeeded, during which the young man received some additional insight into his duty from the experience and native acuteness of his commander, and then the former took his leave. As Duncan could only act as the representative of the commandant of the fort, the ceremonies which should have accompanied a meeting between the heads of the adverse forces were of course dispensed with. The truce still existed, and with a roll and beat of the drum and covered by a little white flag, Duncan left the sally port within ten minutes after his instructions were ended. He was received by the French officer in advance with the usual formalities and immediately accompanied to a distant marquis of the renowned soldier who led the forces of France. The general of the enemy received the youthful messenger surrounded by his principal officers and by a swarthy band of the native chiefs who had followed him to the field with the warriors of their several tribes. Hayward paused short when, in glancing his eyes rapidly over the dark group of the latter, he beheld the malignant countenance of Magua regarding him with the calm but sullen attention which marked the expression of that subtle savage. A slight exclamation of surprise even burst from the lips of the young man, but instantly recollecting his errand and the presence in which he stood, he suppressed every appearance of emotion and turned to the hostile leader who had already advanced a step to receive him. The Marquis of Montcalm was, at the period of which we write, in the flower of his age and, it may be added, in the zenith of his fortunes. But even in that enviable situation, he was affable and distinguished as much for his attention to the forms of courtesy as for that chivalrous courage which, only two short years afterwards, induced him to throw away his life on the plains of Abraham. Duncan, in turning his eyes from the malign expression of Magua, suffered them to rest with pleasure on the smiling and polished features and the noble military air of the French general. Monsieur, 
said the latter. J'ai beaucoup de plaisir bas, I'll SCT interprete. J'ai croy, monsieur, chouel en sera pas nécessaire, Hayward modestly replied, J'ai parle en peu franese. Ah. Oh. J'ai en sweet bienese, said Montcalm, taking Duncan familiarly by the arm and leading him deep into the marquee, a little out of earshot, J'ai detest C.S. Fryponzel, on any Saint Germain's or Quilpie on Estevec use. Eh, bien. Monsieur, he continued, still speaking in French, though I should have been proud of receiving your commandant, I am very happy that he has seen proper to employ an officer so distinguished, and who, I am sure, is so amiable as yourself. Duncan bowed low, pleased with the compliment, in spite of a most heroic determination to suffer no artifice to allure him into forgetfulness of the interest of his prince, and Montcalm, after a pause of a moment as if to recollect his thoughts, proceeded. Your commandant is a brave man and well qualified to repel my assault. Mais, monsieur, is it not time to begin to take more counsel of humanity and less of your courage? The one as strongly characterizes the hero as the other. We consider the qualities as inseparable, returned Duncan, smiling, but while we find in the vigor of your excellency every motive to stimulate the one, we can, as yet, see no particular call for the exercise of the other. Montcalm, in his turn, slightly bowed, but it was with the air of a man too practiced to remember the language of flattery. After musing a moment, he added, It is possible my glasses have deceived me, and that your works resist our cannon better than I had supposed. You know our force? Our accounts vary, said Duncan, carelessly. The highest, however, has not exceeded 20,000 men. The Frenchman bit his lip and fastened his eyes keenly on the other as if to read his thoughts, then, with a readiness peculiar to himself, he continued, as if ascending to the truth of an enumeration which quite doubled his army. It is a poor compliment to the vigilance of a soldiers, monsieur, that, do what we will, we never can conceal our numbers. If it were to be done at all, one would believe it might succeed in these woods. Though you think it too soon to listen to the calls of humanity, he added, smiling archly, I may be permitted to believe that gallantry is not forgotten by one so young as yourself. The daughters of the commandant, I learn, have passed into the fort since it was invested. It is true, monsieur, but so far from weakening our efforts, they set us an example of courage in their own fortitude. Were nothing but resolution necessary to repel so accomplished a soldier as M. de Montcalm, I would gladly trust the defense of William Henry to the elder of those ladies. We have a wise ordinance in our Salique laws, which says, the crown of France shall never degrade the lance to the distaff, said Montcalm, dryly and with a little hauteur, but instantly adding, with his former frank and easy air, as all the nobler qualities are hereditary, I can easily credit you, though, as I said before, courage has its limits and humanity must not be forgotten.
I trust, monsieur, you come authorized to treat for the surrender of the place? Has your excellency found our defense so feeble as to believe the measure necessary? I should be sorry to have the defense protracted in such a manner as to irritate my red friends there, continued Montcalm, glancing his eyes at the group of grave and attentive Indians without attending to the other's question, I find it difficult, even now, to limit them to the usages of war. Hayward was silent, for a painful recollection of the dangers he had so recently escaped came over his mind and recalled the images of those defenseless beings who had shared in all his sufferings. C.E.S. Messerzel, said Montcalm, following up the advantage which he conceived he had gained, are most formidable when baffled, and it is unnecessary to tell you with what difficulty they are restrained in their anger. Ebien, monsieur, shall we speak of the terms? I fear your excellency has been deceived as to the strength of William Henry and the resources of its garrison. I have not sat down before Quebec, but an earthen work that is defended by 2,300 gallon men was the laconic reply. Our mounds are earthen, certainly nor are they seated on the rocks of Cape Diamond, but they stand on that shore which proves so destructive to Dyscaw and his army. There is also a powerful force within a few hours' march of us, which we account upon as part of our means. Some six or eight thousand men return Montcalm with much apparent indifference, whom their leader wisely judges to be safer in their works than in the field. It was now Hayward's turn to bite his lip with vexation, as the other so coolly alluded to a force which the young man knew to be overrated. Both mused a little while in silence when Montcalm renewed the conversation in a way that showed he believed the visit of his guests was solely to propose terms of capitulation. On the other hand, Hayward began to throw sundry inducements in the way of the French general to betray the discoveries he had made through the intercepted letter. The artifice of neither, however, succeeded and after a protracted and fruitless interview, Duncan took his leave, favorably impressed with an opinion of the courtesy and talents of the enemy's captain, but as ignorant of what he came to learn as when he arrived. Montcalm followed him as far as the entrance of the Marquis, renewing his invitations to the commandant of the fort to give him an immediate meeting in the open ground between the two armies. There they separated, and Duncan returned to the advance post of the French, accompanied as before, whence he instantly proceeded to the fort and to the quarters of his own commander.